We're talking about human wisdom and worldly wisdom today and boasting in Christ, and that's really what our theme is all going to be about today as we work through this, so boasting in Christ alone. Has, has anybody noticed, to, to Don's and my deference, that sometimes um, we Texans can be a little bit boastful? Anybody ever? I know you're, it's jealousy, but have you noticed that from time to time, Texans will think that we're bigger and better and kind of do things? Okay, so I, I got to tell you a true Texan moron moment I had to, uh, yesterday and this morning. My truck was filthy, absolutely nasty, dirty, with salt all on it. So my great idea was I'm going to pull it in the garage. I'm going to wash it. I'm going to clean my poor truck so it'll be that. Don't start laughing yet. And so I I pull it in and I wash it down real good. And I'm not a complete moron, so I dry it. Because, you know, I figure if it's wet, a little ice will stick. So so I dry it off real good in the garage and I had the doors open. So I, I dried the jams and I'm feeling good about myself. And then I pulled it outside and parked it. And so this morning I attempted to go out to get into my truck. And what I discovered was essentially a completely crystallized organism in my driveway. There was no, the clicker was not working. There's no getting a key in anything. The entire thing just has a sheen about it. It's shiny, but it's a sheen. So I had to go get the little blast heater and turn it on and aim it towards my truck so that it would open. And I got the door open only to discover that when the garage was warm and humid, the inside of the vehicle became warm and humid. And when I pulled it into the driveway in 15 below, the entire inside of the vehicle looks like the outside of the vehicle. It's all encased in an ice. So we finally got it to start, and 40 minutes later, I could pull out of the driveway. But it seemed like such a good idea at the time, right? It is clean, by the way. It's shiny, inside and out. Sometimes human wisdom leads to really foolish decisions, and sometimes what seems like a great idea at the time, in light of God's wisdom and God's knowledge, turns out to be a rather foolish thing. So that's part of what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to look at two fundamental uh, headlines. One is going to be aligning our associations in light of our identity in Jesus Christ, and then second, human wisdom leads to foolishness like washing your car in the middle of winter. Um, And so we're going to try to get to what we called layered corruption today. Um, But I want to start off with with responding uh, to a series of really great questions that got asked this week. Anytime um, I say something up here that people have a problem with or a challenge to, um, I will get emails or a call during the week. And normally, I can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I I got that wrong. Here's the correction. But sometimes, like last week, such a great question gets asked that I like to answer it where everybody can hear because I think it's important. So great question. I want to provide you a great answer. Last week, I used this scripture. It's 2 Tim um, 316 to 17, and I use it a lot, but it says, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And what I'd said last week was this verse where it says, the man of God, he's speaking to pastors and teachers, uh, that the pastors and teachers need to spend their time in Scripture so that they are, they are teaching well, they're rebuking correctly, they're training right, and they're equipped for every good work. And some folks, uh, four in total, actually said, hey, man, that's not written to pastors, that's written to everybody. And I said, uh, no, man, that's written to Pastor Timothy by Apostle Paul. And so here's what needs to be said. I didn't complete this thought all the way out. Let me try to complete that thought. At Paul's, um, the end of Paul's life, he's there in the prison in Rome, and he's going to write three of what are known as the pastoral epistles, right? Pastoral epistles, which means letters to pastors. And he writes these to, to two different people. Can you tell me who they were? 
Timothy and Titus. So he's going to write this to young Pastor Timothy and poor Pastor Titus who got sent to Crete. (laughs) Bummer, right? And so as Paul is writing to them, he's giving advice to them as pastors, how to operate the church, how to deal in, in Scripture as well. And all three of these letters are written by Paul here at the end of his life where he knows he's going to be executed pretty soon. And he's talking about matters such as church organization and discipline and appointment of elders and deacons and how opposition of rebellious members are going to happen and false teachers and the maintenance of purity. And he's giving advice to him and he's saying, listen, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's here so that you as a young pastor are well-equipped. If you think you're going to get your wisdom from something other than Scripture, you're going to be poorly equipped. And so this is his advice to young Timothy. But here's the thing. The pastoral epistles have to be extrapolated and application made to all Christians in the faith, just like we're doing in Corinthians. And what that means is essentially this. When you read what was written to the church in Corinth or to Paul, uh, from Paul to Timothy, what's happening is the message and the underlying truth is the same, and the application has to be made today from the timeless and enduring truth. Understood? So that's what being a good student is all about. Yes, Timothy is written to Pastor Timothy, but the truth behind it is our truth today. And it it goes like this. All of us who study the Scripture, who seek to be good Christian stewards of the truth we've been entrusted with, we can trust that all of the Scripture is there for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for instruction in righteousness, so that those who study okay, may be complete well-equipped for doing the good work. In other words, living the way God's called us to live. So that's what we do with the Scripture. So yes, written to Pastor Timothy, extrapolated to each and every one of us here, that message is timeless and the message is enduring. Fair enough? So uh, thank you for the questions. They are really good ones. And, and I appreciate when you ask so that I can respond rather than just leaving something hanging. So today we're going to be looking, as we said, about boasting in Christ alone. Let's look at what that scripture was. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. And again, it reads like this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows what the reasons, that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the word of life, or death, or things present, or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So how do we make our our uh, application today. First of all, um, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means all people who walk on the earth have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we align ourselves with people and, and, and say, I'm with so-and-so, we're together, that's who I identify with, you essentially open yourself up for the eventual embarrassment of being let down by somebody. Have you ever been let down by somebody? Anyone? I think every hand probably should go up at this point. Have you ever let anybody down? Yeah, now the honest people raise their hands. Thanks, Sharon. We're together on this. So look, if I haven't let you down yet as a pastor, I've got 23 and a half minutes yet, and I'll probably let you down at some point. The fact of the matter is people fail. 
And so when we align complete with, with people or human movements or human ideologies or human associations, a time is going to come when they are going to let you down. So what we need to understand is our alignment should always be with Jesus and in Christ and all other alignments are subservient to that. So there are what we refer to as liaisons where, where we have aligned ourselves and made alignments as churches and as people in areas where danger, danger, Will Robinson. It's really easy for us to make alliances that will eventually embarrass or discredit the name of Jesus Christ. And we need to be careful as Christians that we align our associations in light of, uh, not in lieu of the gospel. Let me, let me give you a few examples. Now, one of the first ones has to do with the church and politics. Now, in this last uh, election uh, climate that we've entered into in American culture here in the 21st century, it's easy to imagine that things used to always be a lot better than this. And recently, really, the church has begun to get involved in politics and create divisions that are unnecessary and unhelpful. And if you were to listen to any of our highly dependable and objective news agencies in America today, you would find that that seems to be the story. But I'd, I'd like to bring some some reality to your minds, and let's get in our time machine and travel back to 1770s and the 1780s, and let's talk about Jefferson and Adams. How many of you know about the Virginia document, or how about the separations of church and state, and what Adams and Jefferson were fighting between them about during the election of the, of the 1786, four, now who's uneducated, uh, but, but this, particular, this particular election, here's what's going on. The newspaper headlines read like this. Jefferson rips God from the public. What? Adams stands for God and stands for the church, while Adams seeks to rip God from the public. These are, these are the headlines. Here's the reality. Much like today, you got to interpret the nonsense. Adams is a good Northeastern Federalist. And what Adams wants is for the Anglican or Episcopal Church to remain the established church of the colonies. In other words, the colonies which have become the United States. Adams wants the Anglican Church to be the official church of America. And he wants them to receive money from the federal government as a Federalist. And he wants them to be subservient to the government. And Jefferson is going, no, 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 no. There is no established church because the church is the religion. And you can't have no established religion, yet an established church. This is the, this is the mistake of the Germans and the English and what we're seeing in, in Switzerland across the ocean. We don't want to repeat this. And so Jefferson is saying, no, there is no state-supported or state-endorsed or state church. There is the church and there is the federal government. And they're not, in, they're not at odds with one another, but they're not supporting one another. The church doesn't pay taxes to the government, and the government doesn't give funding to the church. Because when you do that, now the two are subservient to one another, and they each owe, they're beholden to one another. So this was Jefferson's point of view. But if you were to read the headlines at the time, it sounds like Jefferson hates God, and Adams is this wonderful, godly Christian man. Can I give you a little revelation from history? They're both deists. They were both universalists or Unitarians in, in their way of thinking. So neither one of them was what we would look at today and say, now that is a theologian for the ages. <laughs> and we would also look at both of them and say, I kind of agree with Jefferson a lot, but I understand what Adams was trying to do. Adams wanted to make sure that this new country 
This country, which was just a matter of years and months old, would keep its bearings in the Bible and in God and not allow God to be ripped out of the public square and not just be isolated to the churches because he realized that without God in the front of the Constitution, all you have is a Constitution that will eventually be subservient to human wisdom as the ages progress. So interesting, isn't it? But today... It seems that churches and religious leaders are all too willing to jump into the political arena and align themselves with persons and peoples and thoughts and ideas and parties. Can I let you know something? That is unwise because people always let you down. And if you associate with a person, eventually the person's going to let you down. That's not a Democrat or Republican or or Libertarian or Tea Party issue. That's just a reality. It's going to happen. Let's not lower the cause of Jesus to be a political cause. And let's understand that the cause of Jesus is an eternal and timeless cause, that it's about the salvation of the world, not just about winning a political battle. Fair enough. But here's some other alliances human beings tend to make. We tend to go into this area where the church is aligning itself and becoming a liaison with what we refer to as social justice. Well, what is social justice? First of all, social justice is a term that means everything, and therefore it means nothing. I've referred to that in the past as a blunderbuss. You just shoot and hope you hit something. But because you can't really aim, it hits everything. And so it's a blunderbuss term when you say social justice. Well, who's defining justice? And which society is it that's defining what justice looks like? And, and, what, and what day and age are you saying it? What does it define at that time in history? And so for Christians to align themselves as being a part of the social justice causes really takes away the deeper meaning of Scripture and what the church is called to do. So if we were to be really clear about what the church is called to do, the church is called to be um, uh, biblically defined. Social justice is a part and parcel of loving our neighbor as ourselves. It's part of keeping the second table of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments, if part of doing good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. But the manifestations of the wisdom of the age and human leaders of the day and trends of the day mean that when we say social justice, we can find the people of Jesus investing Christian time and Christian equity and Christian love into things that do not further the gospel. They only further what we would refer to as social justice. But justice apart from Scripture and the gospel ultimately continues to lead to ruin. So how do Christians engage things like racism and sexism and hate and exclusion? How do we engage the fact that the poor are always going to be with us and we have a responsibility to that? How do we engage the fact that some people are marginalized and others are gluttonous? How do we, how do we engage that? We do that through the gospel which means we love people and we love God and we treat others the way we want to be treated and we do so with Jesus Christ's name out in front to say, because of the love of Jesus, know that you are loved and welcome here. Because of the love of Jesus, know that we're going to catch you before you fall or pick you up once you have. Know that because of the love of Jesus, we're going to conduct ourselves with love and grace and calmness and level-headedness. And we're going to be welcoming where we may not be accepting. We're going to be engaging where we may not be endorsing. But we're going to love people even if we differ with them. 
That's how Christians conduct themselves. That's the justice of the kingdom of heaven being lived out in the world we live in. Because here's what I can promise you. What we call justice and fairness and equity today in 21st century America will look different in 27th century America if there's still an America. And it looks different than it did in 19th century America, where the big argument was whether or not race-based slavery is consistent with the slavery we see uh, in the age the Bible was written in. And so you had social justice warriors who were about abolition and others that were about better treatment of slaves. But at the end of the day, those, those are not the arguments. The arguments are, how does God tell us to treat one another? How does God tell us to engage with? And we engage with people with the love of Jesus Christ. And spoiler alert, it's kind of hard to have the love of Jesus and be hateful, right? So the church's aligning with social justice is a fail simply for this reason. Social justice doesn't mean anything, but the love of Jesus compels you to some things. So this is where those liaisons are different. But how about one that's probably even closer to all of us, and that'd be denominationalism. The body of Christ is one church, right? Your Nicene Creed, it's one, the term Catholic meaning universal worldwide. It's one church, the people of Jesus, his church. This is God's plan for evangelism and discipleship, and there is no plan B. This is God's plan. But humanity has determined that we will separate ourselves and isolate ourselves from one another, even be combative with one another, based over different accents within the family of faith. I grew up Southern Baptist, and the way I was raised is the Catholics are the bad ones. They're not even really Christians, and most of them are going to hell anyway. Are you sure? You, you, are, you, are you sure? Right? And, and then I had other, other people around me that were Lutherans, and they were saying, no, we're the only ones that have got this right, and the rest of you who are not in the Lutheran church, you're probably going to hell twice. You know, and what? What are you talking about? And then there were our Assembly of God friends. You know, they were so busy hopping over the fuse and jumping up in the... I'm just kidding. And so we, we were arguing back and forth within the family. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on just a second. There's going to be differences in the family of Jesus Christ, but what we must not allow is for those differences to lead to alienation, isolation, and animosity between fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. The gospel is where we start. And from there, theology and doctrine will develop, and there will be different accents within the language of the family. There will be some areas where denominations or groups do venture off into heresy and into apostasy, yes. But for the great majority, we are the people of Jesus Christ, and we need to be acting like it. Here's what you're going to see from Sturgeon Bay Community Church. We are friends with and collaborating and cooperating with other brothers and sisters in the faith of different accents in our town. Your pastors get together with other pastors in the area. Our church collaborates and does things with other pastors in the area and other churches in the area because we do not believe that only us have it right and everybody else in town is headed to hell because they're wrong. But denominations are important because they do allow and endorse and empower people to have differences in maybe the way we worship and the way that we approach some different areas of Scripture. And that can be okay. Now, <clears throat> it is grown-up conduct to understand where things differ and verge away from Scripture. And yes, there are some differences in denomination that, that are the subject of apostasy and heresy. Don't misunderstand. But denominations themselves and these divisions where this is now allowed and endorsed and our group are going to take our ball and go over here, that is not the church of Jesus Christ by design. And the reason I can say that is I'm looking into Corinth and I'm seeing what is the advice <clears throat> that Paul is giving to the church there in Corinth. He's saying, don't deceive yourself. 
If anyone thinks you're wise, let him become a fool so that no one, um, so that he can become wise. For wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Skipping on down, he says, let's not boast in human wisdom, whether Paul or apostles, Cephas. What he's alluding to to the church in Corinth are divisions within the church. Would it blow your mind to know that these are the same kind of divisions or denominations that we have today? Let me elaborate. Paul was kind of your blue-collar apostle. He was Jewish, yes. He was excellent at what he did, and he was eloquent. However, he did not have the eloquence of the Corinthians and the Romans. He did not come into town dressed perfectly and speaking perfectly with incredible human wisdom in the language and the style of the sophists. Paul was more like your blue-collar, get it done. He's kind of the Travis Tritt to the Christianity in the early way, right? For you country music fans, you're going, oh, I love my Travis. But, but if you go over here, and you, this is kind of the crowd that would relate most to Paul. He's down to earth. He's kind of that blue-collar apostle. He brings the truth, and he brings it in, in that such a way. So he's the Charlie Daniels of the Torque Ranch, right? So here's Paul. And then we're going to move on. We're going to see Apollos. On the other hand, you've got Apollos incredibly well-spoken, not erudite, but certainly educated. When Apollos began to speak, he spoke like the sophist, with the eloquence of the sophist. He was spit and polished like the sophist, came from money, and he knew how to attract that kind of people. Biblically consistent, gospel accurate, just like Paul, but reaching a different crowd. And then there's Cephas. Now, who's Cephas? Peter. Okay. But why does it say Cephas? Why would they identify with Cephas? Because they're identifying with his Hebrewness, his Jewishness. And what this group of, of Christians is doing is they're still being all Jew, all law, but they see Jesus as the Messiah. But they're retaining all their Jewishness and all their legalities and legalism and Pharisaism, and they're still identifying in that Cephasness, in this Jewishness. And so in the church in Corinth, are you ready? You had three denominations that were existing within that church, and Paul's writing to all of them at once. And he's saying, don't fall into these misconceptions of the wisdom of the age, whether Baptist or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Catholic or Assembly of God or Methodist, you are the children of Jesus. Scripture is where you find instruction and teaching and correction and rebuking. This is where you find it. That is where you go. Not to your human wisdom and your identity within your denomination or your separation from one another. So while the churches may be separate with Paul's kind of people prefer Paul's style or Apollos' style or Cephas' style. Remember, there's one gospel that you're called to, and these divisions must not exist among you. Do you see how totally irrelevant that is to our world today? You see where Scripture is just nonsensical. It's so old. It's so, you know, culturally driven and bound that we can't even use it today, right? No, it's exactly the same today. There's nothing new under the sun. Who said it? The Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying, listen, vanity, vanity, all these ideas you have of your uniqueness, this is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. All these futilities, they're all going to fade. The sun will rise, the sun will set, and the same thing will happen in another generation or generations beyond. Nothing's new. What was true to Corinth, what was true to Timothy and Ephesus, is still true today. So how do we now take that and engage that into our culture right here? Well, I told you that's the first part. We need to be careful about our alignments and associations, that our identity in Jesus is driving our, 
our social justice engagements, uh, the love of the poor, the looking out for the marginalized, and, and, and that secondly, our love of Jesus is determining how we engage in, into the world of politics and how we behave and what we do and don't do and how carefully we uh, select how we identify and what sign we might put out in front of our yard or not. And also being careful that we don't look to other Christians and other denominations as somehow enemies or apostates, but different accents perhaps are the same gospel and understanding that there are legitimate differences and fails that have happened in some, but that doesn't mean that we see people as unworthy of the gospel or unworthy of our love and attention. The second one now speaks to how human wisdom can lead to foolishness. So uh, there, there's this phrase, there's, there's um, uh, how do I want to do this? Um, sometimes you can deceive yourself and other times you can be deceived. Would you, would you agree? Anybody ever believe something that turned out to not be true? Ever made a bad stock decision based on a tip from a buddy? Yeah, or something you saw on you know, one of the financial books or magazines from Forbes that said, this is the hot stock, and it turned out to be a primrose path, you know, right? That's going down a, a path that leads to nowhere. So it's easy to be deceived, and sometimes um, people can be simply deceived by others. Sometimes we deceive ourselves. How does this happen? Okay, it happens within a framework or, or, or a moray or a culture, if you will. And this is what it looks like. When you live in the United States of America in the 20th and 21st century here, there are some things that that are just kind of our way of life that we've come to believe and to value. And we often assume that they are completely scriptural values as well. And because they're good and they're American, we assume that, that it's equal to scripture in a lot of ways. And so we believe some things that may not really be scripturally consistent. Now, I'm not going to go down the path of trying to nail all those out or identify all those right now. It's a good life group discussion, by the way, this week. If you want to follow up with that, what are some things we've believed that are cultural that are not necessarily scriptural? So we can be deceived by the wisdom of the age, the science of the age, the social uh, fabric of our age, and we can assume that they're true. And here's what people will do. We will hear things taught by pastors or preachers or bloggers or social voices or, or, or you know, people who talk on social media because that's the source of wisdom. And so we assume by hearing that that that's truth and we allow them to deceive us, but other times times, what we find out is we want something to be true so bad. We want it to be defended so bad. We want to be able to get along so bad with the culture around us that we will deceive ourselves into believing, well, that must be what Scripture would agree with because it seems so right. Yeah? Can you see this? Let me, let me pick at my Southern Baptist heritage for just a minute. During the 19th and the early part of the 20th century, racism and slavery were defended by Southern Baptist pastors because they were looking to the Scripture and said, see, it says slave right here. It has Philemon and everything. And it says, you know, Moses married this, this black woman and his people were mad at him for having married this Ethiopian woman or whatever his wife was. And they're saying that, see, see, this shows that, uh, that, that blacks are different from whites and therefore slavery makes perfect sense and that's how they sought to defend it. What? We look at that today and go, were you collectively on crack? What's the matter with you? We look at it today and we go, how can you be so blind? How can you be so deceived? Well, it's easy if that's what every voice around you is saying. And it seems to solidify your view and your point of view. 
And if all you're hearing is social voices and you make scriptural decisions based upon culture's wisdom, you can make incredibly bad and disastrous decisions. It wasn't until much later that people started to go, whoa, whoa, what, how did we get here? How did this, no, no, this is absolutely wrong. Look, repent, stop, back up, restart. That is human wisdom. We must put that away and return to godly wisdom. And thankfully, you know, gleefully, Southern Baptists did exactly that. But, but, what are we doing today in culture where we hear the voices of culture and we make the Bible accommodate to it because we so much want to be friends with culture that we become traitors to Scripture? So let's look at what that looked like in Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Come on, let's hear the pages. We're going over to Ephesians 4. It's going to read like this. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, and then Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in your futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts." They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with the desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, take off your former way of life, the old self that is, deceit, that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in this world. Let me give you a a brief theological kind of treatise here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You with me? We all good so far? God did that. God didn't, didn't sit by and go, oh my gosh, a bang. God, God created the heavens and the earth. And in doing so, he created all things good. And eventually he made mankind, he called it very good. And he formed a relationship with Adam and Eve. And he placed him into that garden with a simple rule. And the simple rule was enjoy, multiply, flourish, and thrive. And some period of years passed with Adam and Eve. Was it a dozen years? Was it a million years? We don't know because it doesn't say. So don't argue about it. But the time comes when Eve and Adam do sin against God. And when they do, everything changes. And from that point on, they come under this covenant that can only be grace. God extends grace to them. And they're expected to do something back as a result of this grace. Time passes and we find ourselves at the ark. And God's got to wipe out mankind because they become so wicked and so destructive. And he wipes them out and he starts again with Noah. And Noah and his family get it just right, don't they? They come off the ark living godly and doing exactly the right thing and and honoring God with their thoughts and their lives and everything, right? And they taught their children to do it and their grandchildren to do it. No, what happened again? Moses, I mean Moses, Noah can't get one day off the ark. He's planting a vineyard and getting drunk and laying naked out there and humiliating himself in front of his family. What are, what are you doing, dude? You just got finished talking to God and this is how you're going to conduct yourself? And so mankind again lapses. We find ourselves at Babel and God separates mankind and years go by and God's going to reach into Ur of the Chaldees and he's going to reach out, although he doesn't have to. 
because mankind is universally wicked and turned their back on their creator God who did all these miraculous things from them in just the generations recent. And God reaches down and he says, Abram, you're going to follow me. I'm going to send you to a place and I'm going to make you a great nation. Your descendants, your family are going to be with me and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you. And, and your descendants will be like the stars in the heaven, like the sand on the seashores. And I'm starting with you. And then Abram said, well, yeah, but what about all the other people on the earth, about all these other good people? It's not fair that you would want to reach out to me and extend grace to me and not do it for everybody. That's just totally unfair. I'm sorry, I can't agree that you exist. Is that how Abraham conducted himself? What Abraham recognized was, oh my gosh, yes, I will follow you. I will, I will fall into this covenant with you. And Abraham does that, and through Abraham's lineage, we have the law. Uh, eventually Moses. And so the people of Israel, the Jews, come under the law, a law and a covenant with God where he says, I extend grace to you because I can and I want to be in relationship with my people. And people then had to come to God through the law. And those who were outside of the culture of the law were not Jews, but Gentiles. And so the Gentile population, as separate from the Jewish population, were those outside of the law and outside of relationship with God. They could come to God through the law. This was the pathway to grace. Beautiful picture. Capacity was certainly there. And the Jews did a great job of taking their religion and their truth around uh, the, the world as they knew it, and people would come to God as a result of it. This is why when Jesus Christ came, And the gospel was heard there at Pentecost. It was heard by people from all numbers of tongues and nationalities and nations. It's why at Pentecost, the languages of the world were spoken and the people heard the gospel. And they took it back to to Syria and to Ethiopia and to to Thailand and to, to India, all around the world, to Spain. The gospel would travel to Morocco and people would be saved because they had come through the law and now were in grace. But if you continue to live like the Gentiles in their darkness, in their godlessness, and their ignorance, you are outside of the covenant of grace. Do you understand that basic of how covenants and scriptures work? Are you with me so far? I know that's deep water. And some of you are going, dude, I just wanted to hear a life application sermon. Here you are with the deep theology. Way to go, R.C. But what I'm telling you is that, that's R.C. Sproul, by the way. But, but what I'm saying is at this moment, what you need to be grasping is this simple fact. Salvation comes through Jesus. Jesus is God. Grace is God's to dispense, not yours to earn. But grace has a transforming effect on our conduct and our life and our value system. And the wisdom of God helps us make our decisions in this present age. It doesn't go the opposite direction. Listen to Paul's progression. He's got this nailed. He's he's nailed it here. He says, So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. Everything is yours. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. You see the progression? You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. You do not belong to the world. Do not let the world dictate your decisions and your values and the way that you engage God. Let your relationship with Jesus determine the way that you engage the world. That's authentic Christian living.
So what we've looked at today, and really what we've looked at over the course of of about the past 11 to 12 weeks in Corinthians is this. You are the children of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. That's who you are, and it must dictate what you do and how you live your lives. Human wisdom, cultural wisdom, worldly wisdom will deviate you from that path, and your compass will be set on a wrong thing rather than a right thing. So... An illustration maybe that helps it make sense to you. The mind of Christ is like having a compass set on the right direction. If you stay on the path towards Jesus, you will make right decisions. Socially, politically, family, sexually, morally, intellectually, educationally. You will financially, you will make right decisions if your compass is pointed to Jesus. If your compass is two to three degrees off, In any direction, you will eventually find yourself way, way, way off the path. It's important that your identity and your actions align by being lined up with Jesus Christ. Fair enough? So the message for today, as we wrap it up, our worship team is making their way back up. Let's kind of see if if there's an American Christian's version of the message to the Corinthians. Here's what it sounds like to Americans. Corrupted minds will lead to corrupted allegiances. Spend good time in the scriptures and in discussion with other sisters and brothers in the faith to assure you are keeping the mind of Christ in front of you.